Welcome to the Protectors of Cool Stuff podcast, where it's all about working smart now, so your patents stay protected later. And now your host, T. Marlowe. So just as a little background, I'm Thomas Marlowe. Uh, previously, I headed up the IoT department at Fairchild Semiconductor. Registered patent attorney. Chief technology officer at Black Hills IP. Nothing is cookie cutter. Without a good aligned strategy, the best you can if you hope don't know for that, is mediocrity. It's just a bunch of pretty graphs and charts. The global landscape around IP procurement and enforcement is changing. Strategies have to fall unicorns and rainbows. But it's up to the business to this make the informed decisions. Comes down to it's where IP strategy practice. begins. All that cool stuff protected by those rights. That's where the value lies. Annuities are a topic near and dear to my heart. You want to keep your patent? You pay your annuity. Hi, welcome. Tom Arlo here. I'm excited to share this interview with you all. Uh, I had a chance to talk about blockchain IP with Michael Henson, a partner at Perkins Coie. It was a fun discussion. You can tell Mike really knows his stuff and has a genuine interest in the technology. I think this discussion is particularly timely too, since we were able to broaden out a bit uh, to get into software patenting, 101 issues, and the recently released USPTO guidelines on subject matter eligibility. You know, this technology and adjacent technologies like uh, AI, IoT, uh, they're just beginning to see mainstream application, and there's a lot more to come. It'll be interesting to see how the stigma of software patenting progresses, how patent offices and courts deal with these developments, especially given you know, the, the importance of these technologies and the need to continue to promote innovation. All right, well, that's just something to think about as you listen to our discussion. Without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Mr. Michael Henson. So, uh, Michael, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, glad to have you on the podcast today. Uh, can you give me a little bit of your your background, what got you into tech and then law as a patent attorney? Sure. Uh, I, I kind of knew early on uh, that I wanted to be an electrical engineer. Um, I, I, my grandfather was awarded the actual the first master's degree in electrical engineering from Rice University. And, no kidding. And I, I, yeah, and and I idolized him a lot, and so I really, I really was intrigued by engineering early on, uh, and so I went to Northwestern University and got my electrical engineering degree there. Uh, nice. I was in a co-op, I was in a co-op engineering program um, while I was an undergrad, and so I would work as an engineer at companies throughout. So I worked at uh, a steel company called Inland Steel in East mm -hmm. Chicago, Indi Indiana, and then I also worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, while I was an undergrad during the first Gulf War. That's um, an interesting combination. Steel Company, <laughs> oh, and by the way, also the CIA. Yes, well, I, I felt I felt like I was James Bond when I was 18 because I had top <laughs> secret clearances, and it was really nice. And the, and the cool. government paid and the government paid for a lot of that. So, uh, and so when it came time to go to graduate school. Uh, you know, a lot of people at the time were they were combining engineering with MBAs, and it just didn't appeal to me that much. And I don't remember how I stumbled across patent law, but I I did stumble across it. I wasn't really one that was really desirous to go to law school necessarily, but I really 
liked the concept of what patent law was because it combined the analytical engineering and and the legal mind, and I thought maybe that would be a good fit for me. And at the time, um, I won't date myself, but it was uh, at the time they were you know graduating I think 45,000 law students a year, but in the entire history of the patent bar since I think they started giving out these numbers in 1852, they were less than 40,000. And so I thought, well, there's probably a lot of work to be had in this field. So it was very intriguing to me, just the combination of those skill sets. And, and, uh, that, that was the impetus of my legal career in patent law. Do you ever miss the, uh, the engineering side of things? I still, well, I, I miss the hands-on engineering side of things in particular, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, as you know, we get a lot of uh, a lot of clients out of some very interesting and innovative things, and so I, I feel like I'm still involved and and really keep up to pace, and I feel like I get exposure to a lot more variety of engineerings than I would if I yeah. just kind of worked at one corporation and and uh, and did kind of the same thing throughout my career. So I, I like true. the I like the variety that that I get. Well, so speaking of, of engineering, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about um, a, a topic you've been doing some work on, which is uh, blockchain technology, which has been in the news as of recent um, as a, a pretty slick piece of technology that seems to be useful in a number of different areas. Um, when did you start to get involved with with blockchain in your practice? Uh, I would say it was about a year and a half, years, year and a half to two years ago. Um, and initially, my interest in it was really personal, and I just kind of wanted to find out what all of the hype was about in the space. Sure. And in, in years past, I did the same thing with the buzz around nanotechnology and clean tech. So, you know, I, I just wanted to find out what blockchain was all about and explore the legitimacy of what it was and digital currencies and just understand what the prospects were. So. I started reading as much as I could on the topic. I'm a sponge for knowledge, and so that's what I did. Uh, and and it just it just fascinated me. And so I started taking, you know, online certification courses through the Linux Foundation and, and other other oh, cool. areas. Um, and and then I really started understanding more about what my firm was doing in the space. I really didn't have much of a comprehension of it actually. Um, and and came to find out that Perkins Coie, where I work, was really a leader. Uh, in this space and, and had formed a blockchain technology and digital currency industry group back in 2013, really more as an emergence of its electronic financial services group than anything else. Oh, no kidding. Um, and so I, I just started trying to find out what were we doing in the space within the firm because as a patent attorney, um, I was a bit sheltered from what some of the other areas of law were going <laughs> sure. on. And so as I talked to, to folks in the group and actually joined the group myself, um, you know, we do regulatory compliance, litigation support, obviously intellectual property, and some of us are in that, a uh, handful of us are doing those uh, things in that space, corporate formation, ICOs, initial coin offerings, and, and of course a lot of financial regulatory issues, Bank Secrecy Act, FinCEN, securities and commodities law and regulation. And so as I really delved into it more, I. Well, we had a obviously we had a great breadth in the space. I began to realize that even from an IP standpoint, while we were pretty active in filing patent applications for a lot of the clients that initially got into blockchain, I just thought there was an opportunity to really develop a best practices around IP and blockchain and kind of get out of the core 
not necessarily focus on core patent prosecution necessarily, but really expand the IP horizon specific to blockchain. Um, and I, I really thought that the, there'd be a growth in the industry of what I, and I still believe this, of really the intersection of blockchain, AI, Internet of Things. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, what's, what's really neat is those three technologies do have a convergence application, which I, I think, you know, there's still a lot of development to be done in that area. But, uh, you, you know, thinking about what could come out of that is yeah, really and then interesting. It, and also the whole concept of smart contracts and really specifically smart legal contracts. So now you have these... These, this code that gets deployed on the blockchain that has to kind of adhere to what the understanding was between the parties. And so you have technical people that have to understand law to now put code on a blockchain that in, in, intends to mimic a, a legal, you know, natural language contract to the extent you can do that. So that presents all sorts of challenges as well. So I really was became intrigued by smart legal contracts. Um, and, and really, as I started kind of learning a lot of the space, I I was struck by what I really thought was an inability of, of people to really explain blockchain in a way that was really easily digestible by the layperson. Which is not uh, easy. No, and it, it's not. <laughs> uh, as, as both a patent prosecutor and somebody with a patent litigation background as well, you know, you, you got to be able to convey something in a digestible way that people can yeah. understand. And so I kind of undertook it upon myself to really develop my version of the blockchain 101 that was really catered to the, the C-suite and other managerial level people. Because I truly felt that if management can't fundamentally understand how blockchain and distributed ledger technologies work, um, and how they could rad radically improve really the way they conduct their business, both internally and with business partners, I thought it would present a roadblock to companies even pursuing the technology because they're never going to push it down to implement it if they can't fundamentally understand what the ROI is for it. You know, and so, that, it's a really good point, uh, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember early on in my career a mentor told me, you know, one, one of your major jobs as a, as a patent attorney is essentially to be a translator. You're going to take stuff that is complicated on the technical side and stuff that's complicated on the legal side and have to translate it for the folks that aren't experts on one or the other of those. And it's, you know, that's, on, that's exactly what you're doing, right? With taking this technology and boiling it down so it's understandable, so it can actually be something that, you know, folks can use. Absolutely. I've used the same analogy. You know, when we draft patent applications, you really have to be cognizant of who the ultimate audience is. And it may change. It may be a business person that's looking to take a license. It may be another engineer that really needs to understand the technology, a judge, mm -hmm. a jury, an examiner. And you've, you've got to re really be able to convey the message appropriately to, to the audience. Um, and it's really no different here. And so I came up with a presentation. I presented it to clients of our firm, colleagues within different offices of our firm to bring others into knowledge about the space. And I've given it to various summits and and meetups around town. And I, I like giving it. So <laughs> if anybody wants to hear it, I'm available. I, I, I will do a road show. <laughs> <laughs> available for birthdays, bar mitzvahs, <laughs> weddings. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Well, I, so speaking of groups, there there are a number of consortiums 
working groups, uh, that type of thing, doing work in the blockchain space. Uh, I, I'm sure you're involved, but are you familiar or involved with any of these, or can you speak to some what some of them are doing? Yeah, there's there there's a lot that are out there. Um, there there are some that I think get on the the, the top of the list more than others. Uh, myself and others in my firm are certainly involved in about a half a dozen of them. Um, the the Chamber of Digital Commerce is one. Perkins Coie, uh, again, where I work, uh, we were one of the institutional members of the commerce, and it's really the world's leading trade association that represents digital, digital assets and blockchain and the blockchain industry. Another one is the, which I joined last year, is the Global Legal Blockchain Consortium. So they organize and try to align global legal industry stakeholders um, around this space and in an effort to adopt policies to promote universal blockchain technology. When it comes to smart contracts, one that I got involved in last year is the Accord Project and, and really smart legal contracts. And, and they're trying to recognize that when it comes to smart legal contracts, there needs to really be a common implementation. And so they have working groups comprised of law firms to try to establish best practices for that. I've contributed um, code to that effort um, as far as model definitions for things and templates. And, and they have their own uh, really domain-specific programming language that is evolving out of that. So that's it's been interesting to be involved in that. Cool. Yeah, there's the Government Blockchain Association, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, and I'm on working groups of, of various ones of these. And uh, it's particularly in the smart contract space or the artificial intelligence side of it. Uh, it sounds like you keep busy. <laughs> that's for sure. I try to. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I bet it's when it's a topic that's that's really interesting. Uh, I'm sure it becomes easy. Well, it's, I wouldn't say it's it's easy, but it certainly becomes. I'm a, I'm a tolerable. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, it's funny when I give the one-on-one -on -one presentation that I that I've given several times. I, a lot of the reaction is, "Wow, I've never heard it kind of explained in those ways." But you you can still see they're like, "I want to learn more, but I think I'm going to forget what you just told me in a half an hour." Because <laughs> it's so bad. No. Yeah, that's well. I'm glad I'm glad you brought one-on-one -on -one up because you know. Blockchain technology falls into this topic around 101 and software patenting that's been in the spotlight, you know, uh, I, I guess good or bad in the last uh, number of years now. And I think just uh, last month, right, the USPTO issued some new guidelines, um, which I believe are open for comment right now. Um, and uh, what are your thoughts generally on the protectability of blockchain-related inventions? You know, given that they fall into that one-on-one. Yeah, -on -one I, I think it's going to be. Yes. He, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, as as your audience well knows, we're dealing with the U.S. Supreme Court Alice case and its progeny mm -hmm. when we talk about this space. And, you know, just, just briefly, in, in, in the ALICE test, it's really a two-step test to determine whether something is, is patent eligible. And, you, you know, you first decide whether it's directed to an abstract idea. And if so, you look to whether the claims include elements that show there's really an inventive concept that's transforming it out of that. And so 
you know, we've been we've been dealing with the Alice test and its progeny for easily five years now, trying to figure out how to navigate through this space and advising our clients. And it's, um, and it's it, crystal clear, right? <laughs> oh, it's you know, the, as as usual, the Supreme Court leaves leaves everything. Uh, <laughs> crystal clear so that there's nothing left to the imagination exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. and so our only and so our only real guidance has been the, the cases that that have come after that and and really to in my view the ones that have upheld patentability so you you know you can say okay i know if i am am going in this area that i have more more of a chance to get it and so, and so what this to what the guidelines from the patent office are endeavoring to do is to really kind of clarify the landscape by extracting the key concepts that are identified by the courts mm -hmm. as abstract ideas and so they've got their own little tests that they're doing and and so they it's really a two-prong inquiry as to inquiry as to whether a claim is really directed to a judicial exception such as an abstract idea and in mm -hmm. in the first prong of this guidance you know, they evaluate whether it recites additional elements that integrate the, I think they integrate the identified judicial exception into a practical application, as they, as they say. And yeah. I think they're kind of, it's it's kind of getting a little bit more consistent with maybe the way the Europe, European patent system is 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 dealing with this issue in abstract ideas, where they look for like a technical effect yeah. and it's, things exactly. of that. That yeah. it, it reminded me of, I've been looking at some of the European guidelines on like artificial intelligence, same, same genre of software, really. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, you're looking for that technical effect, you know, something above and beyond just math or, uh, you know, an algorithm or something that just kind of exists in the mind. That's right. And so, you know, I don't know what your feeling is. I think the general consensus in the in the patent community is that the the new guidelines are have have relaxed the standards somewhat for obtaining a patent in this space and removed some of those hurdles. Um, wouldn't wouldn't surprise me in a few years that the Supreme Court revisits all of this and mm -hmm. <laughs> and brings us back down to earth. I don't know, but I think it's, <laughs> it's I think it's <laughs> with all this stuff, it it always seems to be a pendulum, right? That, that's swing right. One way, you swing and, back and, the other, and yeah. And I, th I think as far as the implications to, to blockchain technologies specifically, I think in many respects, since they're software-driven, the prospects are going to look more promising. Um, there's a lot of blockchain applications that have a wide variety of industry and technology um, applications to them. So I, th I think we're going to find it to be an area in the coming years that's really extremely active from a patent filing standpoint. And we're really kind of already already seeing that even without these new guidelines in effect. Yeah, and I think especially when you're talking about applications of an underlying blockchain technology, that that makes it a step kind of more of a um, technical implementation, where you've got a you know a product. Here's the thing, a deliverable uh, at, at the end of it, um, you know, as opposed to kind of a an abstract function. I guess. I, I, I completely agree. Yeah. I think that's yeah, a good point. So given, given your practice, do you have any suggestions on uh, tips and tricks or art units uh, to shoot for, to avoid, or <laughs> things that you can do in prosecution? <laughs> well, to, to the extent we can control these things, right? Uh, <laughs> right. But, but they're as 
as you're alluding to, there's, I, I don't see this information a lot, but I have seen statistics on, you know, they, they rate all these art units on, on, on their allowance rates and particularly in the electronic commerce business processing space. There's a lot of them in the, in group 3,600. And there are mm -hmm. a couple of them that are just notorious for having very low allowance rates. Um, and, and, I, I, I come across these a lot. Uh, it's unit 3689 and 3622. And it's interesting because there are, there's 15 or 20 within the group 3600, but these really jump out as anomalies from really low uh, allowance rates. And it's frankly a little bit peculiar, um, especially when you consider that some major companies are filing applications that get into these units. You've got Google, Microsoft, Bank of America, MasterCard. Uh, it's really dominated by a lot of major corporations that file here, mm -hmm. and, 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 and they get into those units. Um, there's, there's strategies to be had where you can try to fashion the wording of an application to maybe uh, hope that it gets uh, in, in, a, in a unit that is not one of those two to enhance your your chances, and I think people uh, have creative ways of trying to do that. Um, and I've heard different views about whether or not one really should try to do that anyway, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there are certainly arguments either way, which we don't have time for on this call, but it's, it's hard to argue from these statistics that there's not a compelling case to be had to perhaps try to do so to maximize the ROI for your client from a patentability mm -hmm. standpoint. When the, you know, if you were talking about a statistical difference of 10% between our units, you'd say, you know, is it worth the time to try and manufacture something to get somewhere else? But like you said, some of those numbers are striking, um, like almost concerningly so, right? Uh, and it, it's almost to the point where it can't be that there's just that many unpatentable in you know inventions that are getting submitted through those two within 3600 i i would agree some of these are some of the the, the differences you're talking about are like five times the allowance rate in some of these other units compared to these yeah. two i mean yeah. it is, these are noticeable differences so yeah so it seems like if, if you can work on a little bit of wording or nuance to uh kind of squeeze over one art unit, you know, uh, you know get on it's just, someone else's desk. It's just another audience member that we have to cater to and wordsmith to, right? It's just yeah, right. <laughs> like there we were go. saying before. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's another one of those, the soft skills that comes with uh, this line of work. Yep. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we, we've talked a little bit about things that make blockchain stand out uh, from other software categories, and hopefully there's ways to kind of leverage that to help get through prosecution um, a, a little bit better. Um, but as we look at other ways to, to protect these developing technologies and software and uh, especially like the algorithms that exist behind it, which might be at the core of new blockchain-based innovations. Um, these seem like pretty interesting or fertile ground for uh, what I like to think of as like dovetailing patent and trade secret protection. Uh -huh. What are your thoughts on kind of when to leverage one, when to leverage the other? 
um, you know, to, for kind of maximum benefit, kind of taking into consideration too some of the struggles that might be had going through the patent office. Uh, specifically on the, the the patent versus trade secret yeah, approach yeah. to something. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I don't necessarily think that these are two mutually exclusive avenues. Mm -hmm. um, there there can be some middle ground and depends on the, the facts of the particular situation. But you know, kind of traditionally speaking, if if your client has something that is innovative that's going to give them a competitive advantage, how do you best protect it? And so when you look at fundamentally whether you might consider a patent or a trade secret. Um, in many ways, it depends on how secret is it? Is it the Coca-Cola formula? Is it a secret sauce that really can't be reverse engineered by somebody, or at least it's, it's pro prohibitively expensive to do so? Then you might consider keeping it as a trade secret because then it doesn't have a, a term limit, if you will, on, its, on the monopoly that you get. Sure. On the other side of the coin, even though people might not know about it right now, if it can be reverse engineered or they can stumble across it in other ways, then it really might not be something that you want to worry about trying to protect from a trade secret standpoint and maybe get out there and patent it. As, as far as the middle ground goes, sometimes you can, you, can, you can have something that gives you that competitive advantage and keep aspects of it a trade secret and patent more general aspects of it. Um, and, and I think there's, there's some tension now, and it's, to me it's not entirely clear. You know, we used to have a best mode requirement mm -hmm. in patent filing right now that a lot of people say isn't really there anymore. I think that opens the door to, to – to have strategies that that are both uh, contemplate trade secret protection as well as patent protection, and figuring out where those lines get drawn to maximize the the competitive ROI for the client. I'm not sure that those considerations um, are any different. That the blockchain presents anything necessarily different from those fundamental considerations as to where you draw that line. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, when I think back to you know very. Um, physical technology. I used to be in the semiconductor industry. We would have uh, circuit designs that you could take a look at, reverse engineer. They might even be schematics on a data sheet, right, that you right. protect. And then we'd have methods of manufacturing, which you might not be able to tell method A versus method B in the end product. Right. And you're right. I think it's a very similar analysis, right? If you've got that method, that algorithm that lives, you know, underneath the application of the technology, it's not discernible, uh, you know, once it's out in the field, then uh, it's you're you're ripe for for trade secret protection. Um, but that application of that technology might be something patentable depending on how you know how you're implementing it. Yeah, and it's like with it's like with many things that are innovative that 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 we see in our day-to-day -day practice. There's not a one size fits all to how you mm -hmm. best go about it. And it's very it's very fact specific and and usually there's a there's and that's what I love about this field is is that there's there can be a comprehensive IP strategy that you can come at things from from different angles and different areas and ways to protect it that is not just uh, myopic in its nature. Sure. Well, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Well, and speaking of kind of different different angles, right? Blockchain gets a lot of attention from its the kind of financial aspect of how it gets applied, cryptocurrencies, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. But if you think broader, just like as a general record keeping type of technology, um, there's, I guess, broader application, right? So as, as these applications touch the physical world, um, it, it seems to make sense. And I, would you agree that those are going to be easier and easier to protect? Yeah, I, I think it remains to be seen, but I, I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I mean, fundamentally, blockchain is – this is old technology, what is really driving the, the – the blockchain itself, right? Distributed ledger technology has been around yeah. for a while. Cryptographic hash functions have been around for a while. Public-private key infrastructures. But the mm -hmm. applications that are now in play from this are are beyond just the financial arena, like you alluded to. And, you know, in my opinion, the ability to protect them in this space shouldn't be necessarily any easier or or more complicated, for that matter, than inventions that don't relate to blockchain. I, you know, the tests for patentability are what they are. But you're right. You know, blockchain and its applications tend to touch the physical world a lot more than perhaps other software-focused technologies. I think one difference is that because there are so many applications for blockchain in different industries, mm -hmm. it, will, it will evolve as an area where we begin to see more and more patent activity related to other areas. You know, artificial intelligence, IoT are, are some examples, as I mentioned before, and I envision a great deal of future activity in blockchain spaces, which integrate those technologies as well, which are naturally going to lead to exponentially more growth in the industry and therefore more patent filings as enterprises start to protect their innovation. So I think while there's a decent chance that it will be easier to obtain patent protection uh, in this space, I think some of that also might be attributed, uh, really might become a, per a perception, um, which in some respects is ultimately attributed to the fact that there might be a growing number of applications that are also being filed as well. Sure. So it will look like there's more being allowed. But we've been we have a an analytics group that has really been trying to uh really see what people are actually patenting in this space kind of post alice mm -hmm. um and uh so we've looked at the u.s patents um international patents and published applications that are out there um and i'm trying to digest these and really get really get a handle on what what is the what does the heat map look like in these areas? Where are people finding that they're able to do this? I mean, if you look at the U.S. alone and you only look at issued issued patents, patent assets in the space, and admittedly there can be some differences in opinion as to how you define what is blockchain and blockchain related or not, and, and it's it's a it's a work in progress. I can I can tell you, but you could easily come up with several hundred U.S. patents, I think, and um, you know I'm seeing. I'm seeing people get applications allowed where, you know, they're enhancing the throughput of the blockchain so that things that make the ledger update more efficiently and expeditiously. It's kind of like changing the general purpose computer into now a special purpose computer if you take the Alice analogy. Sure. You know, things, sure. things that things that enhance the security of the transactions on the blockchain. MasterCard has gotten a patent recently on something like that. Um, consensus mechanisms, uh, things that are different on-chain and off-chain storage schemes um, are getting allowed and things that interact with the blockchain, so IoT devices and, uh, and things of that nature. So uh, I think it's really interesting to, uh, to see what these technologies are in this space that um, are, are, are outside of just 
pure software coding concepts, which in and of themselves are not going to be patentable. And I think the the variety of blockchain applications that are out there will lend itself to uh, a lot of a lot of prospects from a patentability standpoint. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And in fact, uh, when when you mentioned the analysis that you're doing, you know, U.S. and worldwide uh, on blockchain IP data. I've got a similar uh, type of analysis going on in the artificial intelligence space. And actually it would be interesting to follow up at some point and see how those two things line up. Cause uh, I guess I'd, I'd be, I'd be interested to see if they're pretty similar. Um, you know, how, I, I suspect they will be. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. Because they're they're kind of very similar in that you know you've got these technologies that are underlying in software, but have effects that are you know kind of much greater than that, uh, right. and applications that are much greater than that, and it's kind of really interesting stuff for sure. Yep. So y since we're talking about software, if you don't mind, I'm going to switch gears on you for just a second uh, and hit the topic of open source. Sure. Um, this has always been, uh, it's a complicated area uh, for sure. Um, I try to delve into it as little as I have to because it seems like there's just scores and scores of licenses and all their details to, to try and deal with. And, you know, I just keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> our, our developers are, keeping on top of that stuff. I'm joking, but, uh, I'm sorry. we try not to advise our clients to just keep their fingers. <laughs> I know, right? but, yeah, legally speaking, that's not necessarily the best hack. That's, that's probably good advice. <laughs> um, on, on the open source, uh, licensing and, uh, that type of front, uh, what do you see from an impact on blockchain developments? Well, you're, you're right. Open source can be very intimidating to, to try to get your arms around. Um, I, I have done some in this space. We have others in our firm that, that they really make a career out of advising clients in this space. I don't consider myself the open source expert, but I do consider myself to know, know a little bit about it to recognize issues and, and, and help advise clients uh, where needed. And, and really open source, it's really just another form of intellectual property. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the blockchain protocols obviously utilize pure open source or a combination of open source and closed proprietary code, you know, and you know, we see a lot, for example, of domain specific programming languages that are evolving in the blockchain space. Solidity for Ethereum is one, one example. Uh, others are coding language, like for the Accord project, they have, they're developing their own code specific language for smart legal contract implementation. So there's going to be open source code that's out there that is more than than, uh, different than necessarily the traditional ones that that we're, we're all familiar with, um, and some of the traditional ones are also utilized in this space. And of course, there are tenant licenses which are going to go on with us. Um, so I think blockchain implementations, whether they're permissionless based or permission based, I think they lend themselves to certainly open source coding constructs. And it's important for organizations to be aware of and develop best practices around their use of open source. 
and the licensing requirements associated with them. I mean, you mentioned those. There's a whole there's a whole spectrum of these licenses, and uh, there's different mindsets on which ones you 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 know. Some people want to adopt the ones that are less restrictive, but that's not necessarily something you have to do. It might depend on whether you're just using something internally or not, in which case you don't have to worry about it so much. Um, but another area that I think um, is going to be really interesting when it comes to open source and blockchains is for for member organizations that are part of these blockchain consortiums, they have membership agreements that relate to the manner in which IP and open source um, is used as part of your membership of the contributions you give. And so sure. are you giving everything away? Or are you reserving some of that for yourself? And as a member, your, your rights obviously are important to understand what they are. Um, so you can't operate blind in this space because a lot of, a lot of companies and organizations are a member to these. My, my firm is one of them, you know, because you want Want to get involved in the space, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunity through these consortiums. But you can't kid yourself; you have to be realistic about their membership agreements that yeah. are, can be impactful here. That Don't you need to be aware what of what some of those uh, requirements in those agreements are, because they may impact the IP that you hold. Absolutely. And so at, at Perkins Coie, we're, you know, we we have a lot of technology companies in in this firm, and so we're. We're regularly counseling our clients in this area, um, and you know how that counsel goes depends on the organization, obviously its needs and its coding complexities. But it's in, important in many disease organizations to have open source compliance policies and to really understand the mm -hmm. spectrum of open source licensing that's out there, and as they relate to attribution rights, derivative works, static dynamic linking, things of that nature. So, with the evolving blockchain companies which can be either really startups or established companies that are going to start implementing blockchain solutions. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think they certainly need to be familiar with these open source initiatives, the guidelines and the legal implications that are involved. And it's so easy, especially for startup companies. I'm sure you've seen it more than once, you know, uh, the kind of the impetus to just get up and going and leave the, let's deal with open source licensing, Let's deal with, you know, if they happen to be uh, join and uh, a consortium, you know, signing and getting moving and leaving all those details to later. Uh, <laughs> we we often we often have we often come in as 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 the cleanup crew, right? For right. some of these startups, yeah. that's that's our first involvement with them when it should have been at the forefront of what they were doing. But it's understandable; they're excited and yeah. And but you know, some some of them are very savvy about doing it. Some of them, some of them, not so much, unfortunately. Well, and sometimes that cleanup can be a lot more expensive than putting in some good procedures at the front end, even though there's costs involved. Absolutely. Which, you know, I guess public service announcement, if you're working in uh, with open source software, if you're working with um, some sort of a uh, consortium uh, and y you haven't thought about these things, might be a good time to reach out to <laughs> someone like Mike, uh, <laughs> you know, get some get some legal advice, um, maybe get some help setting up uh, a program to to keep you on track so you don't wind up with issues down the road when when they start to cost a lot more. Yeah, I mean there there are efficient ways to do this this up front. Uh, you know, it's it's not unusual for a lot of people to perceive that they get an attorney involved and they're going to have no money at the end of the day and and I certainly <laughs> right. understand that sentiment, but like you said, 
there, you know, we, we can do things efficiently up front more so than we can for a client after the fact when we have to come in and clean up things. Mm -hmm. hey, yeah, amen. Can you talk about what are some of the other interesting applications or uses uh, for this technology that you've seen, you know, generally out there? I think it would be good for the for the audience to understand. We, we keep talking about the variety of blockchain applications that are out there mm -hmm. without really kind of specifying what some of them are. And there really are a lot, but um, you, you find that there's a, so there, there's some very attractive industry groups that are out there where you're seeing a lot of these, this activity. Um, and so for folks that are within any of these industry groups, I would really encourage them to explore blockchain as a possible solution. Just things to think about are the su supply chains, uh, healthcare and life sciences. Um, uh, as far as, you know, the, the, the origin of, of, of drugs and, and where mm. they go through the life cycle and really supply chain relating to that as well. Technology and communications. We've talked about financial services, uh, energy, natural resources is one. It's, it's a big one as well. And aerospace transportation devices and not, let's not forget the voting systems. I mean, I, I think oh, voting, voting yeah. and, and record keeping systems and real estate transactions those are very ripe areas where a distributed ledger where people can trust the trust the underlying data and therefore interact with people without intermediaries, but interact with people that they don't know and otherwise wouldn't trust. Mm -hmm. Now blockchain now blockchain fills in that void and now you open up the prospects for for business opportunities for individuals and companies that that probably weren't as available to them prior to this technology. It's it really is pretty amazing the number of applications that exist out there for using this technology and how much better it is than what we're doing right now. And I think in 10 years, maybe less, we'll be looking back saying, you know, how on earth did we manage contracts, uh, you know, basically with a piece of paper where someone would send the signature page back and forth, and and that would be it. How did we dial somebody through a rotary dial phone? Exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. The same, the same idea. You know, why on earth were we uh, um, dealing in uh, real estate transactions by basically rewriting a deed that was written and rewritten and rewritten that? Uh, you know, just by replacing names and then signing a document and putting that, you know, you know, in a file somewhere. And now that's, that's the record that governs who owns this, <laughs> you know, usually what's one of the most valuable assets that, that a person owns in their life. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a paragraph on a piece of paper down at a town office. Yeah, it's, it is it is a shifting paradigm for businesses, I, and I'm not I'm not one of the ones that's in the camp of thinking the blockchain is the solution for everything, but it certainly is a very viable, attractive solution for a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a pretty interesting time that we're in uh, with regard to this technology. So, Mike, if if folks want to reach out to you, either they're they're in a technology space and they want to get some advice on implementing blockchain technology or they've they've got some interesting uh innovations that they're working on and want to think about how to best protect them or they need someone to come and talk to them about what blockchain is or you know maybe some one-on-one -on -one advice uh what's the best way to to reach you 
Well, I, I, you're more than happy to, to give them my email and uh, a, a link to my LinkedIn account, um, and they can also just call me directly. If, uh, if you've got my contact information, any of those will work, and I'd, I'd okay. be happy to help out in any way I can. And, and uh, we have others in the firm, too, that can, can assist in other areas of law surrounding this technology. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm an IP-focused guy, but we have, uh, as I mentioned before, people with a variety of skill sets that touch on the blockchain space. So we can help clients on a variety of fronts. Great. We'll put your information in the show notes. And if anyone uh, can't find it there, feel free to reach out to us um, here and we'll uh, forward your information along. But great. great. Well, Thank Mike, so it's, much. it's been a pleasure having you on uh, and talking about uh, this technology. Really interesting stuff. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure as well. 